Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Good evening, children of the night. I'm Stephen Kilpatrick, your host for the evening. Step one in from the cold into the warm cabin. I have to admit, this winter for the Shenandoah Valley has been quite tame overall. It was only a few years ago the winter was so severe we might have had to cannibalize each other. But tonight we have sandwiches, a bit of cider, and oh, looks like someone brought some chips. I have a thing or two to share before we move on, but tonight we'll be hearing from Sylvia Schultz with Lights Out, and our main fiction will be from Christopher Monroe. So stay tuned. Recently, I introduced Nicole Doolin as Nicolette. I've messed up an introduction before, and I'm sure I'll do it again. However, this one in particular I wanted to speak to in a bit more depth. First of all, if I'm going to mess up an author's name or bio, or mess up a narrator's name or bio, I'd rather be the author. Why, may you ask? Narrators are not paid at all. The only benefits they receive are the feeling of contributing to our labor of love that we call Tales to Terrify, and if they so choose, exposure. Authors just get exposure. Nicole Doolin's reading of Turning On, Tuning In, and Dropping Out of the Mountains of Madness by Ahimsa Kirp was a particularly unusual one for me to jumble up because of how happy I was at the production of it. You may recall, I mentioned, I'm not a fan of hippies. I can't tell you why, and most of the things that hippies are known for, peace, environmentalism, and so on, I agree with. Perhaps it's like that person you meet for the first time, and you just hate them. 
No real reason to put your finger on just a clash of personality. But Ahimsa Kirp's story was a good, solid read, and I had some doubts still that it air well, but when I got it back from Nicole Doolin and listened to her narration, I really enjoyed it. So, why am I going on and on about this particular mistake? This show has made a few of them over the years. What about this one, hmm? I'd like to share a little bit about myself. Many years ago, when I was in elementary, my family lived in Dearborn, Michigan. There was a girl that sat in my class. She had glasses, right before glasses started to change from being nerdy to cool. She had hearing aids, something that the rest of the class found peculiar because she was so young. Children associate these with old people. She was a quiet girl, if I remember right. She had very fair skin and dark hair. Perhaps she was quiet because that was her nature, or perhaps her glasses and hearing aids embarrassed her. If they did not embarrass her, she was certainly teased for them. I can't say with any certainty that I was not party to that, but I cannot clearly remember. She had been absent from class for a few days, and the teacher told us that she had died. Brain tumor. We were all invited to her showing at the funeral home. I recall my dad had taken me to the funeral home, and I vaguely remember the foreignness of the place. Having never been to a funeral home, never being around someone who was no longer alive, not being sure how to conduct myself in a place that felt like a church, but wasn't. She was shown without her glasses or hearing aids, which made her even more difficult for a child out of place to recognize. Days later, I received a thank you card from her parents for going to the showing. I don't recall having met them or their names. In fact, I don't recall my teacher's name, my best friend's name from that time, or anyone from that class, even though she was nearly a stranger to me. I remember hers, Nicolette Keller. As years rolled on, she had a way of haunting me, not in any sort of supernatural sense, but being in the wings of my mind. When I started to learn about God and heaven and hell and worried about my eternal soul, there was Nicolette. When I pushed all that aside and tried to kill myself, death by inches, with alcohol, cigarettes, and miscellaneous, there again was Nicolette. When I came out on the far side of that, somewhere in the middle of the two, there she still was. I'd like to say something profound, that her presence had encouraged me to a life better or more adventurous life, but really nothing like that. Just a constant thanatophobia with the reminder that one day I'll be joining her, and maybe soon, maybe later. How could we know? And I say all of that because I was putting together my notes, including that for properly crediting Tales to Terrify's friend, Nicole Doolin. Nicolette was close by. Ordinarily, when I bungle intro, it's just because I bungle intro sometimes. This one had a bit more to it. Thank you for letting me share, and remember to visit Nicole's website. Link will be in the show notes. First up, Lights Out from Sylvia Schultz. Tonight she will cover, uh, well, she does a fine job of introducing her own work, so let's go ahead and get into it. Hi there, this is Sylvia Schultz, your host for Lights Out. I'm so glad you could join me today. There is a theory in reincarnation circles that if someone has a more than passing interest in a certain period in history, there's a better than average chance that they've spent a previous lifetime or two, or three, or a dozen, in that era. If this is true, then I'm quite sure I've spent several lifetimes in ancient Egypt. I have been obsessed with the ancient world all my life, and Egypt has always held a special place in my heart. 
So it was with a real sense of excitement that I discovered a few really, really gross stories. Not necessarily ghost stories, but tales of ancient deaths and age-old curses and crumbly, dusty mummies. I take a great deal of pleasure in sharing some of those tales with you in this episode. So grab your torches, duck into the narrow tomb passageway with me, and let's go lights out. One of the very first Chicago ghost stories my father told me back in the heyday of my Egypt obsession, so I was like 10, was the tale of the screaming mummy at the Field Museum. Sometime in the 1930s, the story goes, a museum guard was making his nighttime rounds when he heard blood-curdling shrieks coming from the Egyptian exhibit. Back then, it was just one big room, not the brilliant tomb and marketplace setup they have now. Anyway, the guard raced for the exhibit, thinking that some poor museum-goer had somehow gotten locked in and had found themselves surrounded by the ancient dead and was currently freaking out. But when the guard reached the Egyptian wing, there was no one there. But one of the mummies had fallen off its slanted display board and was lying face down next to it in its case. When this story is told, many times the screaming mummy is said to have been the mummy of Harwa, the doorkeeper of the Temple of Amun, which has been in the museum's collection since 1904. However, as Adam Selzer points out in his Mysterious Chicago blog at mysterioushicagoblog.com, this may not be true. He says that the earliest known mention of the incident, a bulletin from the museum reprinting an earlier piece by Henry Field from 1953, says that the mummy was naked and Harwa is still completely wrapped, except for his head. Now, the thing that freaked me out the most when I first heard this story, creeps me out to this day as a matter of fact, is that no one, no matter how determined they were to cause mischief, could have gotten into that case to tip the mummy off its slant board. You see, the display cases are filled with nitrogen gas to keep bugs from attacking the ancient bodies. In order to go in and replace the mummy, curators had to pump the poisonous gas out before they could even go in and set things right. Freaked me out then, freaks me out now. One of the best gross-out stories I read concerning ancient Egypt was actually not in a history book. It was in a book about honey. The Roman writer Columella repeatedly mentions the use of honey in embalming bodies. Honey is a fabulous preservative, as it tends to drive moisture away from tissues while still keeping them supple. Imagine a piece of fruit soaked in honey, pliable, sweet, and delicious. The Greek philosopher Democritus was preserved in honey. And the Arab writer Abd al-Latif relates that some Bedouins were out in the desert near the pyramids one day, looking for treasure in the nearby tombs. In the shifting sands, they discovered a sealed jar, which turned out to be full of honey. The travelers dipped their bread into it for a midday snack. As they started eating, one of the men noticed a hair in the honey he'd smeared on his bread. The men dumped the honey out of the jug, and out slid the corpse of a small child in a perfect state of preservation. The tiny body was richly adorned with jewels, 
But I'd be willing to bet that was cold comfort to the poor schmo who had already taken a bite of his honey-smeared bread. In 1976, when I was eight years old, the treasures of Tutankhamun went on tour from the Cairo Museum. Even before then, I was entranced by the story of the boy king, his short life, the discovery of his all-but-forgotten tomb, and the gold, everywhere the glint of gold. I recently read a wonderful book by Daniel Meyerson called In the Valley of the Kings, Howard Carter and the Mystery of King Tutankhamun's Tomb. The book was all about the years leading up to the discovery of the tomb and the personalities with which Howard Carter had to contend. One of these characters was a man named Arthur Weigall. He was one of the inspectors at the Valley of the Kings, and he chronicled his adventures in Egypt in many essays. These stories both come from the early part of the 20th century, a time when rich patrons paid for each season's worth of digging in the desert in search of the treasures of the pharaohs. One of these men was Lord Carnarvon, who financed Carter's digging for many years. In 1922, Carter would discover King Tutankhamun's tomb. But in 1905, that exciting moment was well in both Carter's and Carnarvon's future. Although Carnarvon had hired a large band of workers and basket boys, anyone could tell that he was an amateur. Digging first in one spot and then suddenly switching to another, he proceeded erratically without any method to his madness. Or so it seemed. A casual observer of this new farce in the desert had no way of knowing that though no archaeologist directed Carnarvon's excavation, the Earl was getting advice from a more reliable source— the ancient priests themselves, who whispered their messages to him through his psychics and supernormalists. The result was that after Conorvan's first season was over and the dust had settled, what he had to show for his work was, well, a mummified cat. An unimpressive find, perhaps, weighed on the scales of the uninitiated. But if we consider the account of Arthur Weigall, the new inspector, then Carnarvon's first discovery might be seen as a portent of things to come, a find in keeping with the Earl's mystical propensities and psychic energy. Lord Carnarvon discovered a hollow wooden figure of a large black cat, which we recognized to be the shell in which a real embalmed cat was confined. The figure looked more like a small tiger as it sat in the sunlight at the edge of the pit in which it had been discovered, glaring at us with its yellow-painted eyes. Its body was covered all over with a thick coating of smooth, shining pitch, and we could not at first detect the line along which the shell had been closed after it had re received the mortal remains of the sacred animal within. But we knew from experience that the joint passed completely round the, the figure, from the nose over the top of the head, down the back, and along the breast, so that, when opened, the two sides would fall apart in equal halves. The somber figure was carried down to the Nile and across the river to my house, where, by a mistake on the part of my Egyptian servant, it was deposited in my bedroom. Returning home at the dead of night, I here found it seated in the middle of the floor directly in my path from the door to the matches, and for some moments I was constrained to sit beside it, rubbing my shins. I rang the bell, but receiving no answer, I walked to the kitchen, where I found the servants grouped distractedly around the butler, 
who had been stung by a scorpion, and was in the throes of that short but intense agony. Soon he passed into a state of delirium, and believed himself to be pursued by a large gray cat, a fancy which did not surprise me, since he had so lately assisted in carrying the figure to its ill-chosen resting place in my bedroom. At length I retired to bed, but the moonlight which now entered the room through the open French windows fell full upon the black figure of the cat. And for some time I lay awake, watching the peculiarly weird creature as it stared past me at the wall. I estimated its age to be considerably more than three thousand years, and I tried to picture to myself the strange people who, in those distant times, had fashioned this curious coffin for a cat which had been to them half pet and half household god. In the distance I could hear the melancholy wails of the unfortunate butler imploring those around him to keep the cat away from him, and it seemed to me that there came a glitter into the eyes of the figure as the low cries echoed down the passage. At last I fell asleep, and for about an hour all was still. Then, suddenly, a report like that of a pistol rang through the room. I started up. And as I did so, a large gray cat sprang either from or onto the bed, leapt across my knees, dug its claws into my hands, and dashed through the window into the garden. At the same moment, I saw by the light of the moon that the two sides of the wooden figure had fallen apart and were rocking themselves to a standstill upon the floor, like two great empty shells. Between them sat the mummified figure of a cat. The bandages which swathed it round being ripped open at the neck, as though they had been burst outward. I sprang out of bed and rapidly examined the divided shell, and it seemed to me that the humidity in the air here on the bank of the Nile had expanded the wood which had rested in the dry desert so long, and had caused the two halves to burst apart with the loud noise which I had heard. Then, going to the window, I scanned the moonlit garden. And there, in the middle of the pathway, I saw not the gray cat which had scratched me, but my own pet tabby, standing with arched back and bristling fur, glaring into the bushes as though she saw ten feline devils therein. I will leave the reader to decide whether the great cat was the malevolent spirit which had burst its way through the bandages and woodwork and had fled into the darkness. Or whether the torn embalming cloths represented the natural destructive work of time, and the gray cat was a night wanderer which had strayed into my room and had been frightened by the easily explained bursting apart of the two sides of the ancient Egyptian figure. In an essay entitled "The Malevolence of Ancient Spirits," Arthur Weigall catalogued a long list of strange incidents. Of mummies being removed from houses where desperately sick children then recover, of mummified animals bursting as their live counterparts suddenly appeared nearby, and so on, incidents that the skeptical may dismiss as coincidence or hearsay. One story, however, was especially noteworthy, and that it needs no supernatural sanction, with or without sorcery. It reveals the, the way the daily work of the diggers had the potential to induce a kind of madness. We were engaged in clearing out a vertical tomb shaft, Weigall recalled, 
which had been cut through the rock underlying the sandy surface of the desert. At sunset, I gave the order to stop work for the night, and I was about to set out on my walk back to the camp when the foreman came to tell me that a mummied hand had been laid bare, and it was evident that we were about to come upon an interred body. By lamplight, therefore, the work was continued, and presently we had uncovered the sand-dried body of an old woman, who, by her posture, appeared to have met with a violent death. It was evident that this did not represent the original burial in the tomb, the bottom of the shaft not yet having been reached, and I conjectured that the corpse before us had been thrown from above at some more recent date, perhaps in Roman times, when the shaft was but half full of debris, and in course of time had become buried by blown sand and natural falls of rock. The workmen were now waiting for their evening meal, but I was anxious to examine the body and its surroundings carefully. I therefore sent all but one of the men back to the camp, and descended into the shaft by means of a rope ladder, carrying with me a hurricane lamp to light my search. In the flickering rays of the lamp, the old woman lay upon her back, her arms outstretched upward, as though they had stiffened thus in some convulsion, the fingers being locked together. Her legs were thrust outwards rigidly, and the toes were cramped and bent. The features of the face were well preserved, as was the whole body and long black hair descended to her bony shoulders in a tangled mass. Her mouth was wide open, the two rows of teeth gleaming savagely in the uncertain light, and the hollow eye socket seemed to stare upwards as though fixed upon some object of horror. Despite the passage of thousands of years, the faces of mummies are often extraordinarily expressive. One has only to compare the peaceful, dignified expression on the face of Seti I with the agonized features of Pharaoh Sekinenre, who died of horrible wounds in battle. Just as I was completing my search, I felt a few drops of rain fall, and at the same time realized that the wind was howling and whistling above me. A rainstorm in Upper Egypt is a very rare occurrence, and generally, it is of a torrential character. If I left the body at the bottom of the shaft, I thought to myself, it would be soaked and destroyed. And since, as a specimen, it was well worth preserving, I decided to carry it to the surface, where there was a hut in which it could be sheltered. I called out to the man whom I had told to wait for me on the surface, but received no reply. Either he had misunderstood me and gone home, or else the noise of the wind prevented my voice from reaching him. Large spots of rain were now falling, and there was no time for hesitation. I therefore lifted the body onto my back, the two outstretched arms passing over my shoulders and the linked fingers clutching, as it were, at my chest. I then began to climb up the rope ladder, and as I did so, I noticed with something of a qualm that the old woman's face was peeping at me over my right shoulder, and her teeth seemed about to bite my right ear. I had climbed about half the distance when my foot dislodged a fragment of rock from the side of the shaft, and, as luck would have it, the stone fell right upon the lamp, smashing the glass and putting the light out. The darkness in which I found myself was intense, and now the wind began to buffet me and to hurl the sand into my face. 
With my right hand, I felt for the woman's head and shoulder in order to hitch the body more firmly onto my back. But to my surprise, my hand found nothing there. At the same moment, I became conscious that the hideous face was grinning at me over my left shoulder, my movements, I suppose, having shifted it. And without further delay, I blundered and scrambled to the top of the shaft in a kind of panic. No sooner had I reached the surface than I attempted to relieve myself of my burden. The wind was now screaming past me, and the rain was falling fast. I put my left hand up to catch hold of the corpse's shoulder, and to my dismay found that the head had slipped round once more to my right, and the face was peeping at me from that side. I tried to remove the arms from around my neck, but, with ever-increasing horror, I found that the fingers had caught in my coat and seemed to be holding on to me. A few moments of struggle ensued, and at last the fingers released their grip. Thereupon the body swung round, so that we stood face to face, the withered arms still around my neck and the teeth grinning at me through the darkness. A moment later I was free and the body fell back from me, hovered a moment, as it were, in mid-air, and suddenly disappeared from sight. It was then that I realized that we had been struggling at the very edge of the shaft down which the old woman had now fallen, and near which some will say that she had been wildly detaining me. Yeah, I can tell you for sure that I would not have been as calm and collected as Arthur Weigall in that situation. Being half-strangled by an old lady mummy? No, thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this peek into the past. Even though there weren't any actual ghosts in this show, I do hope I did a good job of creeping you out. If you did enjoy this show, I encourage you to seek out my book, Timeless Embrace. It's a collection of four romance novellas, taking a look at the three ancient cultures, Egypt, Greece, and Rome. There's also a mythology story thrown in there just for funsies. It's a nice change of pace, and if you like humorous romance, you might want to check it out. Visit sylviaschultz.com for details. Join us next time. We will return to haunted asylums when we next go Lights Out. That was Sylvia Schultz with Lights Out. Thank you, Sylvia. Link will be in the show notes to Sylvia's page. In tonight's fiction will be Christopher Monroe's Thank You for Choosing Evil. Christopher Monroe is an author-slash-actor-slash-comedian from Calgary, Alberta, whose fiction has previously appeared in the Steve audio fiction magazine The Way of the Buffalo and Journey Into Podcasts and numerous other places around the web, and whose debut novel, Broken Escalator, is due to be released independently for e-reader platforms and podcasts uh, later this year. He likes words and ideas and occasionally has trouble seeing the difference between horror and comedy, which has led to unexpectedly amusing stories and absolutely terrifying stand-up sets. More of his short fiction can be found at christophermonroe.blogspot.com. Link will be in the show notes. He's thrilled to hear his work on Tales to Terrify and hopes you enjoy his story. And now, Christopher Monroe's Thank You for Choosing Evil. What startled David most about the registrar's office was how aggressively ordinary it looked. He didn't know what he'd expected going in.
It had been more than 15 years since he'd last set foot in such an office. But whatever it was, the reality of the place was miles from it. Spotlessly clean, decorated in neutral beiges and browns, tasteful but unmemorable art on the walls, it overall gave the impression of a doctor's waiting room, or the outer lobby of a sales office, which, in a way, was exactly what it was. Nevertheless, the overall effect was jarring in the extreme. A generically pretty blonde girl sat reading a paperback behind a desk, across from a row of chairs that seemed comfortable enough to wait in, but nowhere near comfortable enough that anyone would think to put them in a home. She looked as though she mildly resented the fact that she was there, though David imagined this was true of most secretaries. It was simply a matter of most secretaries hiding it better, and this one not bothering with the pretense. David had nothing against secretaries as such, and it wasn't as though his own job doing due diligence for a medium-sized investment bank was particularly thrilling or meaningful, but he wasn't sure he'd be able to stand dealing with someone else's clients all day long, a task that, unfortunately, this secretary was going to have to put down her novel and suffer through. David coughed, and then, when it became clear the woman wasn't going to respond until he assembled words into something resembling a coherent sentence, he spoke. Um, he started. Hello, I'm David Peters. I have an appointment at three o'clock. She looked up at him from her desk, sighed barely perceptibly, and pointed to the clock on the wall. 2.45. Well, yeah, I just wanted to make sure I was here on time. I can wait, obviously, I just... I'll ask Mr. Harris if he can see you early. She cut him off, waving toward a chair as she stood, and, without giving David so much as a second glance, wandered down the hallway behind her, disappearing into an office at its end. David watched her go, then moved to the chair to which he'd been directed and sat uncomfortably. It wasn't the chair itself that was uncomfortable, simply that David had, for the previous three days, been uncomfortable in his own skin, and no simple change of scenery could alleviate the tension that hung over him like a shadow. He had hopes that his visit to the registrar would help, but he didn't have high hopes. He waited. He only waited five minutes before he started to fidget in his seat, according to the clock on the wall. Five minutes but it felt like much longer. He did his best not to become anxious during the wait, as it was he, after all, who had arrived early, but it was an uphill battle. Anxiety was a state he had found himself slipping into more and more frequently as the week had worn on, and finding more and more comfortable once he was within it. He didn't enjoy this newfound attribute of his, but he saw nothing he could do about changing it, and anyway, he had too much on his mind to focus on such a minor detail of his character. So he pushed it to the back of his mind and focused on waiting, anxiously. Fortunately, he didn't have to wait long, as before long the secretary was back at her desk, novel in hand, grudgingly doing her job. He'll see you now, she said without looking up from her book, as she flipped through it, looking for the page she'd left. Just head down the hall to his office and wait, and he'll be with you in a moment. Thank you, David said, rising from his chair. Nothing replied the secretary, immersed in what she was reading and satisfied with the performance of her duties. David wandered down the hall, eventually finding his way to an office every bit as ordinary as the waiting room had been. An oak desk sat in front of an open window, looking out on the parking lot and office flats across the way. It was a large enough desk to imply success, but nowhere near a size that might suggest opulence. Behind it, a tall-backed leather chair sat, 
unoccupied. In front of it, a shorter chair of similar upholstery faced the desk, and around the setup lay the detritus of office life. Diplomas and certificates on the walls, bookcases full of handsomely bound novels on success in business, the sorts of things you'd expect the office a man of modest success to have. The impression it gave was welcoming, but utterly... As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Impersonal. David browsed the books in the cases, suspecting as he read the titles on their spines that most of them had never been opened. After a minute, he took a seat in the chair in front of the desk, pleased as he did so to realise that it was much more comfortable than the chairs in the waiting area. He wondered, as he relaxed back into it, how long this meeting would take, and if he ought to have cancelled his five o'clock appointment back at the bank. He didn't wait long. Good afternoon, Mr Peters. A man, David assumed it was Mr Harris, said as he bounded into the room. I trust Alexia didn't keep you waiting long. Harris was exactly the sort of man you'd never expect to work in an office such as this. Tall, broad of shoulder and a smile gracing the sort of face that would look strange and alien if ever it were to stop smiling. His tailored tan suit fit him perfectly, but something about the way he carried himself implied he'd be more comfortable in jeans and a t-shirt. He was looking at David earnestly, as though he expected David to say something, which David quickly realised was exactly the case. No, no, he reassured Harris as he bolted out of his seat. Not at all. She showed me right in. Good. A large hand was offered, and when David took it he felt the calluses there, thinking again that this was a man better suited to life outside an office. Harris gestured back to the chair, 
and David sat as Harris took his own place behind the desk, readying himself to begin his pitch. Well, thank you for coming in, Mr. Peters, he began. May I call you David? David nodded. Glad to hear it, David. Thanks for meeting with me here today, and thank you for considering evil. We know there are a lot of moral reference points from which to frame your perception of life in this fast-paced modern world, but we're confident that, once you've really stopped and considered all the available options, you'll find evil best suits your ethical perspective needs. Honestly, the way the world is now, it really does provide the best set of tools for navigating the obstacles you're likely to face in the 21st century. This in spite of the fact that it's a moral system with a rich and storied history stretching back through thousands of years of human history, perhaps even farther back than recorded history itself. How familiar are you with evil, by the way? Anyone evil in your family? Among your friends? At work? Well, David said, after a pause, I work in an investment bank, so... Ah, yes, Harris said and laughed. Well, that's a definite growth area for what we do here. May I offer you a drink? He walked to a wall-mounted shelf by the bookcase and, removing a panel, withdrew a hidden minibar at which he paused, staring back expectantly at David. Um, no, thank you, David replied. It's a little early in the day for me. But you go ahead. I didn't need your permission, actually. Harris laughed as he poured himself a tumbler of scotch. That's one of the best things about evil. Everyone knows about evil men and evil deeds and the evil we do unto one another, but nobody ever stops to properly appreciate the weight evil takes off your shoulders. Evil is about not needing permission or having to apologise or worrying what other people think. It's about being truly in the moment, doing what comes naturally to you without having to consider how it might impact others. It's about treating the world like it's your private plaything and damning the consequences. Ultimately, Evil's a tool we use to liberate ourselves. Harris sat back at his desk, sipped his scotch and smiled beatifically at David, trying to discern whether his words were getting across. David stared back silently, not knowing what to make of what he'd been told. He'd known there were solid reasons for evil to exist in the world, but he'd never had them explained so enthusiastically for him before. Like most people, He'd first registered on his 14th birthday without giving much thought to his moral options. His parents brought him in, he'd signed a few forms, and the registrar gave him a book explaining what was expected of him as a morally aware adult on their way out. His mother, an elementary school teacher, had been good, his real estate salesman father neutral. They'd registered their child neutral, as it was the best way to keep his options open for whatever life he might want to choose for himself. But it wasn't until years later that David even considered the possibility that neutrality might not be for him. Even when he'd never acted on the idea, comfortable as he was within his established system of ethics, David had enjoyed neutrality. It fit him well, or he had grown to fit it. He liked not having to judge people, felt it allowed him to accept them for who they were without having to analyse their actions through a particular moral lens. An evil man, after all, though monstrous in his day-to-day life, could be fascinating company at a pub on weekends, and why should labels prevent David from enjoying that company? Likewise, while good appeared to require far too much effort for David to pursue himself, some of the finest and most loyal people he'd ever met were good, and he saw no reason to spurn their friendship simply because of the lifestyle choices they'd made. So David was neutral, and neutrality had suited him fine until, three days previous, 
He had been forced by circumstance to make an appointment to return to his neighbourhood registry office and re-examine the possibilities available to him. Until he'd been forced. This went through David's mind as he and Harris stared at one another and Harris was happy to leave David alone while he thought. He'd been working as a registrar for long enough to know that, sometimes, the best way to sell someone on a set of principles was just to define your terms and then get out of the way and leave him with his thoughts. And from the look on David's face, this was one such time. David's face was, after all, that of a man haunted. Dark circles underlined bloodshot eyes, and his hair was dishevelled, as though too little thought had been given to it as he'd put himself together for this meeting. He slouched on his seat, eyes only half-focused on Harris as the two of them spoke, looking like he was having a harder time keeping up with the flow of conversation than he'd like to admit. He looked like a man adrift, desperately trying to keep his head above water in a life that had spiralled beyond his control. The sort of desperate man for whom evil, in Harris's opinion, was made. The sort it could help the most. And it was up to Harris to make him understand that. So once he decided David had had enough time with his thoughts, he started the conversation anew. You know, he said, we talk a lot in this country about freedom. Political freedom, and freedom of speech, and freedom from want. But do you know what freedom really is? It's freedom from moral obligation, David. Freedom from guilt. The freedom to do as thou wilt, and never have to worry about the consequences. Without this sort of freedom, you don't have the autonomy to make your own decisions. And without that autonomy, can you truly call yourself a man? Now, I'm not saying I don't respect the other moral systems. I greatly admire good and neutral men. I admire the devotion good men must have for doing what's right at all times. And I admire a neutral man's ability to simply live without needing to constantly judge the people around him. But let's face it, these men are not free. Not free in any way I understand the world at least. They're restrained by their obligations to others, to aid them or to accept them, and as long as their obligation is forced outward, they can never truly be themselves, never live for themselves. People call one another selfish, as though it were a bad thing. But the self needs to be focused upon for personal growth to occur. And evil is, in my experience, the only true path to the sort of selfish thinking that people not only need, but deserve. And they do deserve it, David, and so do you. You deserve evil. You're worth it. David sat up a little higher in his chair, and for the first time gave the other man his undivided attention. Is that true? he asked. That you're worth it, Harris responded. Absolutely, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Good people might tell you to put others above yourself in pursuit of a better world, and neutral people might say you have no frame of reference from which to judge others. But what they're really saying is you aren't worth it, and many people internalise that lesson so deeply that they no longer even understand it on a conscious level. They go through their days acting like bit players in their own lives, and I don't want you to be like that any longer. I don't think you want it either, otherwise you wouldn't have made this appointment. You're worth it, on some level you know that, and you just need to say it out loud and make it real for yourself. Go ahead, say it, it's liberating and you'll feel much better afterward. Harris expected this final push to swing David wholeheartedly into a lifetime of enthusiastic evil. It had, after all, worked in many such meetings in the past. But instead of leaping to his feet joyfully, face flush with understanding of his true nature, David shook his head distractedly, as though annoyed by something. 
No, he said, becoming agitated. No, that's not what I meant. I meant the part about freedom. Freedom from guilt. Is that part true? That if I'm evil, I won't feel guilt. And as quickly as that, Harris understood that this was more than simply a man in midlife crisis, looking back at the decisions he didn't make, and that the time for carefully practiced speeches was over. He stood, came around the desk, perched on its corner, and put a hand on David's shoulder. David, he asked, what was it that brought you here to talk to me today? David looked up at him, eyes wide, and for a moment, Harris was afraid he might cry. Harris was a very good registrar, but when his clients cried, he never had any idea what to do. This was, he knew, due to a lack of empathy that, while not necessary to a lifetime of evil, tended to go hand in hand with one. Fortunately, David took a couple of deep breaths and managed to get himself back under control, and Harris felt a flood of relief that he wouldn't have to comfort a crying man. After a few more breaths, David answered the question. It's my wife. Your wife? Harris asked, once he realised how far he'd have to go to draw the whole story out. What about her? It's just... David said, then stopped, his mouth working but no more words coming out. What? Harris pressed. Is she evil? Is that what this is about? Because you don't need to convert for her if it makes you this uncomfortable. Evil neutral relationships can be very successful if they're approached in the right spirit. No, David's voice hitched. It's not that. It's a different thing. Hey, Harris's voice softened. It's okay. You can tell me. I was raised neutral too, so I know how not to judge. And anyway, I'm prohibited by law from sharing any part of this conversation, so you can tell me anything you need to and not have to worry either about it getting out or about me thinking less of you, okay? Just say it. What about your wife? David stared at Harris for what seemed like much longer than it probably was. And then suddenly it all came pouring out of him in a flood, words rushing forward beyond either one of their control. We've been married nearly four years, and I love her, I really do. I've loved her almost since the moment I saw her, as a guest at my friend Martin's New Year's party. They work together in an advertising agency. I kissed her at midnight, and we wound up talking until the sun came up. I love her laugh and the way she squeals when she's surprised, and every morning I wake up grateful to have her sleeping next to me. People warned me that years of marriage would dull the edge on that, but it never did. For me, anyway. And for her? Harris prompted. For her, well, we'd been having problems lately, but I hadn't thought much of them. Every relationship has stressful times, and her job was keeping her busier and busier. She was spending more nights working late, and by the time she got home she didn't feel like talking. I'd assumed that once we got some time to spend together... Things would just sort of work themselves out. But... David stopped again for a moment. Is it too late for me to change my mind about that drink? Harris was halfway to the bar by the time he'd finished the question. He poured three fingers of one of his better scotches and returned to hand it to David in silence, waiting for David to continue in his own time. But three days ago, he continued, clutching the drink with both hands, I left my laptop at home when I went to work. It's the bank's laptop, and I don't usually bring it home with me, so I'd completely forgotten it was there when I left the condo that morning. Normally with something like that I could just muddle through without it, but I had a meeting with the board scheduled the next day, and needed a bunch of notes I'd saved on it to prepare, 
So that wasn't an option. I had to go and get it. I told my secretary to cancel a couple of appointments and drove home as quickly as I could. I hoped I'd be back before anyone noticed I was gone. I don't live very far from my office. But when I got home... Another pause while David gathered his thoughts into something coherent. Harris nodded, smile still fixed to his face, urging him on without a word. When I got home, of course I noticed Martin's car in the driveway. How could I not? I tried to tell myself he was there for some innocuous reason, but even before I went inside and heard the moans from upstairs, I was doing a pretty bad job of it. I did my best to restrain myself. I honestly did. I mean, I've spent my whole life trying to not judge people, and I didn't know what circumstances might have brought either one of them to this moment. But there are times when judgment forces its way through, you know? I raced upstairs, burst into the bedroom, and there they were, a man I'd considered a friend and my wife. My fucking wife! David threw the scotch tumbler and it shattered against the wall, spraying scotch and shards of glass everywhere. That was fine. Harris had other tumblers, and he'd have plenty of time to clean it up later. He didn't let his gaze waver from David as he continued. She was on top of him, screaming his name in my bed, as though the years we'd been together meant nothing to her, as though I'd never even existed. I knew the two of them had dated before we met, but I'd never gotten the sense that there was any lingering connection. He had introduced us, for Christ's sakes. How could he... how could either of them... David's voice caught again, and he struggled to regain control of himself, but control wasn't coming easily. It had been a long time since it had. Eventually, he sank back into his chair, looking exhausted and defeated, and covered his face in his hands. I was so angry I could barely breathe, he finally said. I couldn't see. I couldn't think. All I had was anger. And with that, he finally started to cry letting loose long, ragged sobs that shook his whole body. It had been building for days, and once the tears came, it was like a dam had burst. There was no stopping them. David cried for what seemed like an eternity, but no matter how uncomfortable Harris was at the display, he stayed where he was, hand on David's shoulder, letting him work through it. He didn't look away or allow his face to betray how awkward he felt. He just made himself present for the other man and hoped that that would be enough. He wasn't sure how long this went on for, being unwilling to check his watch at such an inappropriate moment. But in time, he began to worry that it might never end. But it finally did, as all things do. David let out one last sob, then threw his head back and screamed a scream of longing and loss and betrayal, the sort that reminds all who hear it that humankind really is only two steps removed from wild beasts and can return to such a state more easily than anyone would like to admit. And then there was silence, as the two men stared at one another, wondering who ought to speak first. I'm sorry. David finally broke the silence, once he'd composed himself well enough to do so. That was untoward. You didn't need to see that. It's fine, Harris replied, doing his best to continue sounding kind and calm. It's fine. People need to vent sometimes. But David, may I ask you a somewhat private question? David laughed at this, wiping the last of the tears from his eyes as he did so, and attempting to seem as though the story had affected him less than it obviously had. After that display, I'd say that I have very little privacy left. Ask away. Harris smiled back, 
sweetly but with a hint of sadness at an answer he suspected he already knew. Did you kill your wife, or did you kill Martin? And as quickly as that, what little humour David could find in his situation was gone. His face sagged, eyes no longer finding the strength to look anywhere but downward. When he spoke again, it came out as a mumble. Do you hear about this kind of thing that often, or am I just that obvious? They betrayed your trust and your love. Was there anything else you could have done? There were, of course, many other things David could have done, but Harris didn't mention this, as only one thing would lead to a step as drastic as moral re-registration. David nodded, less out of genuine agreement as the desire to agree that his actions had been forced rather than chosen freely, and continued, I killed them both. We keep a gun in the dresser by the bedroom door to protect ourselves in the event of a break-in. I had it out before I even realised what I was doing, and had shot her before she even realised I was in the room. I think she might have died without ever knowing I'd killed her. Martin knew, though. He knew when her blood spattered his naked body in the wall behind him, when he suddenly found himself fucking a corpse. I could tell he knew, because he started screaming and he never stopped. He didn't stop when what was left of her sagged down onto him, gushing blood across his chest and the bedclothes beneath him, and he didn't stop when I pulled her body off him. He didn't even stop when I put the gun to his forehead, yelling at him to shut up so I could think. If I hadn't shot him, I'm not sure he would have ever stopped, and I couldn't handle it. I had too many other things on my mind to deal with his screaming. I should think, Harris responded, killing people does keep your mind pretty occupied. Oh yes, David's eyes finally rose from the floor to look directly at the other man as he said it. Yes, it did. I couldn't believe I'd done it. It all happened so fast. One moment I was realising my marriage was a lie. The next I was in a room with two dead bodies holding a gun. I didn't know what to do. I'd never, obviously I'd never been in a situation anything like that. I was lost and confused, and I knew I'd just done something horrible, but I was still so angry at both of them that I couldn't bring myself to feel bad about having done it. And I had no idea how to deal with the situation, um, mechanically. Mechanically? Yeah, you know, with the bodies, I mean. I had no idea how to dispose of a corpse, and it's not like you can just call an ambulance and have them carried out. David blushed at this admission of inexperience, and Harris suddenly found the man very endearing for reasons he couldn't quite put into words. So, he asked, if I may ask, what did you do, mechanically? David half laughed again, only this time it sounded as though his laugh could turn into a sob with the slightest provocation. He put his face back in his hands, took another deep breath, and, once he was ready, answered. I called Marion, my supervisor at the bank, She'd had some problems with her ex-husband a few years back, and they'd been solved when he suddenly disappeared. Plus, she's evil. I mean, companies aren't allowed to ask people's registration when they're hiring, obviously, but she was really open about it. Everyone knew. I didn't want to call her. I felt like telling somebody else what had happened would make it somehow more real. Plus, if I misjudged her, I could wind up in prison. But I hadn't misjudged her. She knew people who knew people. And people they knew made a living making problems like mine go away. She was actually incredibly helpful. I'd always suspected she might be a little bit attracted to me, but after all the help she provided... And now you're back on the market, 
Harris knew he shouldn't say it, but he couldn't resist throwing in a wink to get a reaction. For Christ's sake, my wife just died, David snapped back, taking the comment with an appropriate amount of offence. I know, I know, Harris told his now sullen client. I'm just mentioning it as a reminder. This isn't the end for you. You'll mourn, then get on with your life. I mean, you said she was helpful, right? So I assume you won't be going to prison for any part of this. David looked as though the idea of getting on with his life hadn't been something that had occurred to him until just that moment. The idea, from the conflicted look upon his face, made him feel even guiltier about what he had done. But Harris could tell the notion also held an enormous amount of appeal. He might not have been ready to heal yet, but the idea that he someday might be clearly brightened him. No, he said, I won't be going to prison. Marion made a few phone calls, and an hour later two men arrived at my house to replace my carpets. They rolled the bodies up in my old ones, took the bedding from my bed and hauled all of it away in a white van. They even dug the bullet out of my wall and bleached and scrubbed it down for me. Wouldn't patch the hole, but they did recommend a place where I could buy the plaster to do it myself. Wow, Harris said, nodding in approval. That's some full-service corpse disposal. How much they charge for that? A lot. David was actually smiling a little, a bitter smile, but genuine nonetheless. But whatever, it's worth it to stay out of prison, and anyway, I have piles of money. Bonus season was good to me this year. But that's not why I'm here. If it had just been that, I'd be fine. I'd never have had to book this appointment. Harris had known if he kept David talking, he'd eventually work his way back around to what had brought him to the registry. And he was grateful to hear they'd finally gotten to that point. He liked David and wanted to do well by him, but he did have other appointments scheduled. So then, what is? he asked. And without warning, David leapt to his feet, suddenly agitated, and began pacing back and forth around the desk, nervously wringing his hands. It's the fact that I can't live with this. I haven't slept in three days, haven't been able to keep food down. I was useless at work the one time I bothered trying to go in. Every time I close my eyes, I see her riding him, or the look on his face when he realised she was dead, or their bodies being loaded onto the truck. I can't function. Marion's covering for me at work, but she won't be able to do that forever, and she won't want to either. I'm a fucking basket case. So if you have some way to make the guilt go away, or lessen it, or whatever, I'd love to hear it, because right now it's killing me. And I have nobody to share it with, because I killed my wife. I killed my wife. She was my wife, and he was one of my closest friends, and I killed them, and I did it without even thinking. For Christ's sakes, what does that mean? What kind of man does that make me? Harris stood from his spot at the corner of the desk, grabbed David by the arms, and spun him back around so the two of them were facing one another, their faces inches apart. He held the agitated man steady as he held his gaze, not breaking eye contact as David's breathing became more regular, edging away from hysteria and back toward the realm of rationality. Only once some measure of calm was restored did he speak. It makes you an evil man. That's why you're here, and I think you knew that when you made this appointment. David opened his mouth as though he were going to protest, then shut it again, apparently thinking better of whatever he'd been about to say. Instead, he nodded mute agreement. I guess I did. His voice was hushed now, weaker. I know you did. That's why you're here. You're not considering evil. You've already crossed that line in a way from which you'll never be able to return. You just want to make it official, 
and to have somebody who understands what you are to tell you it's okay. And it is. It is okay. There are millions of evil people in the world, and the vast majority of them lead full, satisfying lives. All you have to do is give up your guilt, David. You won't be needing it anymore. You killed your wife because you're evil, and because evil people do pointless, destructive things sometimes. It's just something that happens, and you can't be held responsible for it any more than you could be held responsible if she died in an earthquake. You were just being what you are, and while you might someday be held accountable for that legally, you can't possibly think you're to blame in any moral way. Morality only applies to you to the degree you want it to. Do you understand what I'm saying? David nodded, his eyes moist as he blinked back tears. Good! Harris slapped his shoulders jovially. Then I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go up front and grab you some forms. We're going to fill them out together, and I'll get the paperwork submitted to change your affiliation. I'll also grab our literature about what's expected of you as an evil man. You can take it home with you. You don't have to read it today. You can go over it whenever you have a few free minutes. Go home once we're done here. Drink a beer. Watch some TV. Get some sleep. And go to work tomorrow. While you're there, thank Marion for all the help she gave you. She didn't have to, after all. And when guilt tries to make you miserable, don't let it. It's as simple as that. It only has as much power over you as you give it, and you don't have to let it make you a victim. You're not a victim, David. Your ex-wife learned that the hard way, right? David sniffed and nodded. Right, he said, voice cracking as he spoke. Good. Well, that's a start. Not great, but it's a start. Have a seat, make yourself comfortable, and I'll be right back with the paperwork. The whole paperwork process shouldn't take more than 20 minutes to do, maybe a week to be processed, and then you can officially start your exciting new life as a force of evil. Does that sound good to you? David nodded one last time, and Harris let him sink into the chair, leaving the room to grab the necessary forms and allow his client some privacy. And once he was gone, for the first time in days, David began to let what he'd done, what he'd become, really sink in. His wife was dead, His friend was dead, and he'd killed them. Because he was evil. Once it had been said out loud, he knew immediately that it was true. He was an evil man, and he'd committed a monstrous act because pointless brutality was the sort of thing that evil men did to the people with whom they came in contact. Evil men hurt people, sometimes irreparably, and they did it without thought or empathy or guilt. And afterward, they never looked back on the carnage their actions whether through malice or thoughtlessness, had caused. They simply did what they did, and they did it without the need for justification, because they were evil. And I'm an evil man, he whispered to himself, alone in the room. He leaned back in his seat then, and for the first time in days, he began to make himself comfortable. That was Christopher Monroe's Thank You for Choosing Evil, as read to us by our old friend, Dan Raybarts. Dan Raybarts has been writing since he was big enough to hide a torch under the blankets at night and scribble stories in the back of his maths homework book. Because who needs maths, right? His science fiction, horror, steampunk, and dark fantasy short stories can be found in Beneath Ceaseless Skies, ASIM, Midnight Echo, Aurealis, and in the anthologies Bloodstones, Dreaming of the Jinn, Ministry Protocol and Regeneration, among many others. In 2014, he was a two-time winner of New Zealand's Sir Julius Vogel Award, won as co-editor 
of the horror flash fiction anthology, Baby Teeth, Bite-Sized Tales of Terror, and one for Best New Talent. His narrations have been heard at the Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, right here, of course, Crime City Central, Wiley Writers, and Tales from the Archives podcasts. Find out more at dan.raybarts.com. Link will be in the show notes. And that will be our show, Children of the Night. Take care of one another and come see us again here in the cabin next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Results still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic Autobotulinum Toxin A is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.